Good morning. It is good to be, did I turn this back on? It is good to be with you. Is it on? It is good to be with you. Can you hear okay? No. No. You want me to use this one? It is good to be with you again. We were together last Sunday. Hopefully you can hear okay. And uh, it's good to be back with you. We want to continue on in thinking a little bit about, really, it, it's, it's sort of become a journey of how uh, John presents the life of Jesus and ultimately uh, uh, the role of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus' ministry, uh, ultimately tied to uh, how God makes himself known. I'll see if I can connect those things as we go. Uh, I want to sort of remind you of the relationship that John had with Jesus. There are two uh, uh, people named John in the New Testament, both uh, very prominent. One is the, uh, the cousin of Jesus, John the baptizer, the one born to Zachariah and Elizabeth just uh, uh, about six months before Jesus was born, uh, the one who was the prophetic voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord. Lord and uh, uh, his ministry. And then there was John, the disciple of Jesus, one of the uh, close friends of Jesus who uh, walked with Jesus and uh, was an eyewitness to the miracles and the teachings of Jesus and the response of the crowds and the interactions with the Pharisees and so on. Um, this close relationship that John had as part of sort of the inner three, Peter, James, and John being the closest three of uh, Jesus' friends. And, and so Jesus uh, uh, had this ministry for somewhere around three years. Uh, timing the ministry is a little challenging, um, but, but it seems for somewhere around three or four years of ministry that uh, uh, Jesus was with the people, ultimately then going to the cross. You remember that while Jesus is on the cross, he commissions uh, John to Mary and Mary to John, Mary his own mother, um, as, as a, a way of saying that John would now take the responsibility to care for Jesus' mother in light of Jesus' death, ultimately three days later, resurrection, and then uh, ascension. So all that to say is John has this uniquely close relationship with the Savior, with the incarnate Jesus uh, through his ministry, and uh, ultimately then uh, as a key disciple and apostle will carry on the ministry and the work uh, after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit comes. And so John gives us the gospel of John. John gives us three letters, what we know as 1 John, 2 2nd John and 3rd John, and then if we have all the understanding correct, he end up, ends up getting exiled to the island of Patmos, and there receives uh, a special revelation on what is yet to come. <clears throat> Excuse me, and we ultimately know that as the book of Revelation. And so there's five books in our New Testament from this particular author. And we've spent a lot of uh, last week uh, in the Gospel of John uh, seeing this presentation. And so I want to kind of remind you of a couple of things we covered and we'll uh, keep pushing forward and see if we can tie this all together as to why we're doing this. But uh, this all comes, again, from this very close dear friend of Jesus who not only was an eyewitness to all of of Jesus' ministry to his death, to his resurrection, ultimately to his ascension, but then serve the church faithfully for years and years and years. And again, if we have our timing correctly, uh, probably the book of Revelation, the last book written in the New Testament, somewhere around 95 AD, D Jesus was probably crucified and then ultimately resurrected and ascended in about 33 AD. So John has had this long ministry uh, after the life of Christ or after the ascension of Christ, uh, serving the church faithfully, and, and all that he's gone through. So there is much wisdom in this, even as John writes these things, ultimately written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right, as sort of a background to what we're looking at, John chapter 18 is where we were uh, last week, and you can turn there if you like, we'll be there just briefly, but just to remind you, this is an interaction that Jesus has with Pilate, and uh, it's really Jesus' answer when Pilate was trying to determine if this really was a king, and Jesus uh, has his interesting responses. So if you can, John 18, just briefly, again, we looked at this last week. And so this is uh, at the time of Jesus' trial. And if you remember, you have some legal challenges uh, at the trial of Jesus. You first have the Jews who want to convict him. But if the Jews convict him, they are not able to put him to death. 
uh, because they're under Roman occupation, only Romans can put people to death. And so then they need to shift from the Jewish legal system over to the Roman system to see if they can get the Romans, in this case Pilate, to convict Jesus the way they want him convicted. So this is uh, sort of a part two or maybe even a part three of the trial process, which is uh, uh, Jesus is enduring here primarily in the middle of the night. And uh, we just pick it up in verse 36, John chapter 18, verse 36. Uh, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, Pilate had been asking if Jesus was a king. My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. Uh, excuse me, if it were, if my kingdom was of this world, uh, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest uh, by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, and this is what we want to sort of uh, think about a little bit. In fact, the reason I was born, Jesus says to Pilate, and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And of course, Pilate responds with, what is truth? And so Jesus tells Pilate, the reason I was born, the reason I came into the world was to testify or to bear witness to the truth. And so this is part of a theme that John has sort of woven together. And so if we want to sort of put some of these pieces together, we're going to go back through John just briefly. And I'll just read a couple of passages again from last week to sort of set the table as to where we go. But again, I remind you, Jesus said, I was born and came into the world to testify or to bear witness to the truth. This is my purpose. I was born to testify to the truth, to bear witness to the truth. We look briefly in John chapter 1 uh, last week, and in verse 17, 18, it reads, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so John is testifying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that truth came to us in Jesus. Jesus is the truth. It keeps going. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who himself God, uh, uh, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And so we start to see that part of, uh, not part of, but the purpose of Jesus' life in coming, according to John 18, to testify to the truth, according to John 1, to make the Father known. That is, the Father is truth, and the Son is here to make that truth known, or make the Father known. That is, I want to continue to confuse and mix truth and father because what we're learning is truth is relational. It's not an idea, but it is a person. Ultimately, it is God himself. And so Jesus has come to make the truth known. John chapter five, Jesus says, I myself can do nothing. That is, he didn't come here with his own purposes or under his own power or for his own uh, agenda. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So again, we have this Jesus came on a mission to represent his sender. His sender is the Father. He came to testify to the truth. The truth is his Father. He came to make the Father known. We see that again, John chapter 14. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, I am the way and the truth. I, I, I am the truth. You disciples need to know that Jesus is saying that I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice this relational idea. If you want to get to the Father, there's a way to do it, and it's by means of the Son or through the Son. The Son comes to direct you to the Father. I suggested last week that Jesus is kind of a giant one-way sign. Like, this is the way to the Father. It's through me to the Father. I came to testify to the truth, the truth of the Father. I came uh, as truth and, and as a reflection of the truth of the Father. And so uh, Jesus carries on, John 14, verse 7, if you really know me, you know my Father as well. From now on, you do know, <coughs> excuse me, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And immediately, Philip, one of the disciples, puts up his hand and says, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. I mean, we know you, we know Jesus, you're our teacher, you're our rabbi, you're our master, we're, we know you, but, but we, we've, we've not seen the Father. I mean, we, <laughs> that, that's the one that you, you say we have, but, but we haven't. We, we've, we've only seen you. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Philip? 
even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That is, Jesus' life, Jesus' purpose, Jesus' ministry was to reflect the Father, to show the Father, to illustrate the Father. And so John is picking up this theme of these purposes of Jesus making the Father known, John chapter 1, right? Or, or, or being truth, right? That's what Jesus said to Pilate, I've come to testify to the truth. The truth ultimately is the Father who then sends the son to make himself known. And so Jesus' purpose, Jesus' ministry is being revealed and it's being revealed relationally as to how he relates to the father. I didn't come on my own purpose. I can't do anything on my own. I came to make the father known. I came to reveal the father. I came to reflect the father. Now, instead of a one-way sign, you could kind of say that Jesus is sort of a mirror. That is, that he is the reflection of the father. Jesus is the mirror reflecting back to people. So now that people can finally see the father, see God as spirit. And so in the Old Testament, you have these occasional instances where people are trying to get a grasp of, God, what are you like, right? We, we have... We have um, uh, Elijah encountering God and wondering what is he like and you always have sort of these veiled references uh, as to what God is like because God in his perfect holiness tends to mean that we need to hide from him in our sinfulness but now God has made himself known in a way that we can see we can't see spirits but we can see a baby born in Bethlehem right we can see uh, a, a savior who does teaching along the shores of the Sea of Galilee that we can see and so Jesus has uniquely made the Father known, which was his mission, which was his purpose, to reveal truth or to reveal the Father, right? So truth and Father, they're going to be sort of twisted uh, uh, together. And so this idea, John chapter 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life that Jesus is presenting. Philip's asking the question, um, but, but we haven't seen the Father. Why don't you show us the Father? And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the thing you need to look at if you want to see the Father. We see that truth then is found in a person. Truth is revealed in Jesus, reflecting or making known the Father. And, and so we, we want to sort of follow through with this truth. He makes the Father known. He reveals the will of the Father, makes uh, uh, the, the truth of the Father. John 15, and this is uh, the last from what we did last week. Um, John 15, verse 26, when the advocate comes, that'll ultimately be revealed as the Spirit, whom I send to you from the Father. So the Spirit is going to come from the Father. The Son came from the Father. And then we have this, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, uh, you, uh, for you have been with me from the beginning. So this is part of sort of the commissioning that Jesus has of his disciples. That is, when I go, then I will send along with the Father, the Father will send, I will send this advocate, the spirit of truth from the Father. So I'm going to go back to the Father, but we are going to send the spirit of truth, the advocate, who is going to testify about me. So in another sense, the Holy Spirit is a one-way sign pointing to Jesus. Jesus is reflecting the Father. The Spirit points us to the Son. The Son reflects the Father. and We now can see God in his fullness, i.e. the Spirit who lives ultimately within us as believers, helps us to understand the truths of the Son, that the Son came, that the Son lived a flawless life, that the Son was worthy to be our Savior, that is, he could bear our sin since he didn't have any of his own, that he actually died on the cross, that he conquered death and resurrection victory three days later, and that 40 days after that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so the Spirit is pointing us to the Son, the Son is reflecting the Father, and this is kind of a theme that we have running through John. John, who has this unbelievably close personal relationship with Jesus during his life on earth, is writing these truths. And this is my way of quickly summarizing 15 chapters of John. Not bad, huh? We could close in prayer. We'd be out early. It'd be my first time ever, but we won't. Because that's what we did last week. Well, we didn't go early, but, but that's what we covered last week. 
All right. So if God the Father is truth, if Jesus said to Pilate, I have come to testify to the truth, to make the truth known, to bear witness to the truth. If you were here last week, we talked about the actual Greek word martyreo, to, to, to be a martyr for the truth, which in some sense ultimately Jesus was dying on the cross. If Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and if ultimately the Holy Spirit is sent and the Holy Spirit is called in John chapter 15, verse 26, the spirit of truth, now we see that truth is personal and found in the personhood of God. That is, the Father is truth, the Son is truth, and the Spirit is truth. That ultimately is what truth is. That is, truth isn't a philosophy, it's not a concept. Truth is personal, it's ultimately relational. And we'll see if we can expand this a little bit. That is, we see truth manifested in the Father, being reflected by the Son, and being made known by the Spirit. That ultimately is how truth has come. If you were with us last week, I suggested that as we come into the election cycle and we're going to get lots of information and lots of news sources saying lots of things about lots of people and lots of ideas and so on, it would just be so nice to know what is true. Right? Just because you hear it or read it or watch it or however you get your news, it would just be not. I mean, I don't know. I don't know any of these people, right? I, I can't tell if this person says this and that person says that. I don't even know if that actually happened. I, I don't even have a way to verify that they're saying this is what happened in the past and this is what I'm going to do, which is better or worse or whatever. I mean, it, it's so hard to know. But what we're seeing biblically, what we're seeing John present to us, is that that's actually not how truth works, that truth is ultimately found at its core in God alone. That is, truth existed before anything else existed, because God existed before anything else existed. And and so truth is uniquely Trinitarian. It is uniquely uh, found in the triune God. That is, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and there's only one God. That's what the Bible teaches. The Father is God. We see that throughout the Old Testament. The Son is God. We see that in the Gospels as Jesus uh, comes onto the scene. And ultimately, when Jesus goes and the Holy Spirit comes, we find that the Spirit is God, and we're reminded throughout the whole Bible that there's only one God. This unique way that God has revealed himself within one God in three persons. And so that is where truth is abiding. And so my suggestion to you is if that's where truth is, and that seems to be what John is saying, and that seems to be what Jesus is testifying to when he's before Pilate, and that seems to be the purpose of the Holy Spirit in coming to remind us of the truths of Jesus, and Jesus is merely reflecting the truth of the Father, that if all that is true, that if that's what truth is, then the Bible, or the way God makes himself known, must be done the exact same way. That is, the Bible must make God known, or God makes himself known through the Father, by means of the Son, through the Holy Spirit. That would be the only way that would work. If that's where truth is sitting, then the only way that truth could be known. So here's what we're saying, and here's what we're not saying, because you might be going, I'm just not exactly sure what he's trying to get at. We look briefly at a passage in Matthew 11 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 last week, and we won't look this week, but they're reminders to us that the world's wisdom, the way the world figures things out, as it turns out, is called foolishness, right? Jesus says to the cities where he's done miracles that are not believing in him, they're foolish, They're unwise because you've seen me testify to truth. I can make a lame person walk and and I can make a sick person well and I can take a dead person and bring them back to life. And the non-response, the the non-response to the miracle is ultimately foolish. Paul makes the argument that the wisdom of the world, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the wisdom of the world ends up to be foolishness and then the gospel becomes a stumbling block because smart people think they're so smart. And as it turns out, smart people are fools 
unless they're, they're, they're what they know is bound in truth. Well, where's truth? Well, truth is the Father who's reflected by the Son by means of the Holy Spirit. You, you, you see what's going on here? So the opposite of the truth would be the worldly wisdom, and the worldly wisdom always turns out to be foolish. So this is what we, we start to see, that for us to know truth, God's going to have to bring it to us is we're not going to be able to get it on our own. You, you can't go and say, look, I don't want to be a Christian, but I'm fascinated with the idea, so I'm just going to study it. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to study the, the best uh, scholars uh, under Christianity. Uh, I'm going to go explore whatever I can related to Christianity. I'm going to look at it from a distance and evaluate it on my own. Th- there's a word for that. That's called foolish. Th- th- that is, that's not how you get to the truth. Now, it's not a bad thing. Many people who have done that have become Christians, right? As they look at it from a distance, the Holy Spirit is drawing them in, and all of a sudden, what seemed to be foolishness at the beginning of their escapades, let's say as C.S. Lewis, all of a sudden starts to make sense. Why? Because the Father is making himself known. And, And so here's the issue, that truth for us as people who are sinful, who our minds are corrupted, whose logic is in the end, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, our logic is foolish. That that in order for us to know truth, truth is going to have to be brought to us. We can't go get it. Truth will have to be brought to us, which is precisely Jesus' ministry. That's what he told Pilate, right? I came to testify to the truth. I came, Pilate, so you would know what was true. And Pilate goes, well, what's truth? And essentially Jesus says, watch this. Pilate condemns Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross. Huh. Well, I don't know what truth is. Three days later, Jesus conquers death and resurrected victory. I wonder what Pilate thought. The Bible never tells us, but be intriguing. Did Pilate figure it out? Did he figure out what truth was? Jesus kind of showed him. I.e., he showed what the Father can do. That is, the Father is not bound by things like life and death. What, what, what can the father do with someone who is dead? Make them alive. No problem, right? That's what is true. So we, we, we get to this uh, uh, interesting presentation of how God's very nature, the fact that the father, the son, and the spirit are all participants in bringing us truth or making truth known or revealing truth to us, that helps us understand a little bit more about the Bible, and what role the Bible will play, <clears throat> excuse me, in our lives. And so that's where I want to really look at today a little bit more, is in light of this is how truth is made known, that we can't go get it. He must bring it to us. He must make it known, which is, by the way, just how our salvation works, right? Me and God, or me and Jesus, don't save me, right? I'm the lost one. Jesus saves me, and, and, and it's by his grace that I am saved, right? It's not me and Jesus got together. I got the first 80% done. He kind of polished up the rest and we're good to go. No, there was no 80%, 100%. I was 100% in charge of the lostness. I did that just fine. And then he took care of the foundness, of the cleanliness, of the forgiveness, and he did 100%. I didn't fix myself up 3% and he did 97 right? We are completely dependent on salvation comes to us from the outside. We don't fix ourselves up. We don't self-save. We're not even participants in our salvation. So salvation comes from the outside. So does truth. Truth doesn't come from within us. Truth doesn't come from us thinking real hard about something or studying real hard or going to the right schools or the right education or here listening to the right philosophies or so on. As a matter of fact, much of that, the Bible will say in multiple places, turns out to be foolishness. And so we see that if truth comes to us from the outside or from God bringing it to us, from God revealing it to us, from God making it known, then we can get a little better understanding here of Scripture. So, uh, all that to get you to go to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to leave John for a moment. We're going to end up back at John if that clock moves slow enough. It's entirely up to the clock. Um, But we will go through Hebrews right now, just briefly. Hebrews chapter 1. Proverbs 
probably a familiar passage. One of the things we can think about when we start to think about this idea, well, if truth is found from the Father, making himself known through the Son by means of the Holy Spirit, this relational idea, it helps us to understand when we sing some of our hymns. We'll sing a hymn that has, for example, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Well, why would we sing that? Well, it's very simple. Because it's that relationship that makes truth known. So when we think, where we sing about the Trinity, when we sing about Father, Son, and Spirit being uh, the God of all, and God in three persons, blessed Trinity, and these various phrases from the hymns that we sing, when we sing those, we always need to be reminded that is that God is relational. There's a relationship there. This is why the Trinity is a blessed thing, is because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have this perfect relationship. And so I want you to think, when you sing about these ideas that express the triune God, you think about relational, you think relationship, you think about good. And if you're sitting there going, is he really telling me how to think? Yes, I'm trying to tell you how to think. That is, we need to think relationally, about how God has made himself known. And I'll explain more as we keep going here. Hebrews chapter one, Hebrews chapter one. Uh, Picking it up in verse three, let's go from verse one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors. This is being written in the New Testament times. We're not sure who the author is. Um, He spoke to our ancestors. That would really be looking back into the Old Testament, uh, the Jews uh, specifically through the prophets. That would be in Isaiah and Micah and people like that. And many times in various ways, but in these last days, that is once Christ comes, we enter the last days. That is the beginning of the end comes when Christ is born in Bethlehem. It's referred to as the last days or the last times. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And so the writer of Hebrews is giving us a glimpse into Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we find out in John chapter one, here in Hebrews chapter one, that God created all things, by means of the Son, right? Isn't that what it just said in verse two here? Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom, that is the Father, through the Son made the universe. And so we're just simply given more detail later. Genesis one, God created everything. John one and Hebrews one, God created everything by means of the Son. That is, there is a relational uh, creation unit. And it's interesting that Genesis 1 verse 2 is the spirit of God is hovering over the waters of the deep. There's where you'd begin to see the Holy Spirit and present in that as well. Verse 3, the sun. Okay, who's the sun? The sun is the radiance of God's glory. God is glory. God is glorious. And that is reflected or revealed by the sun. So we look up and we're trying to see God. We can't see God. God is spirit. But God sends the sun and all of a sudden we get a better glimpse of who God is. That is, if we've seen the sun, we've seen the father, right? That was Philip's question. Show us the father. And Jesus says, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That was John chapter 14. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. That is, the sun is the exact representation of the father's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That is, he speaks and it is so which is what Genesis 1 was, right? Let there be light. And then there was a hesitation. We had to work up a formula. We had to try three or four times, and then finally we got light to work. No, 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 it wasn't like that. The word spoke, and in its authoritative nature, light existed. And so all things not only were created by word, or created by the word, Genesis 1, but are being sustained by the word. In other words, if Jesus would say the word, we would cease to exist, or the world would implode on itself, or whatever Jesus would choose to do. It's controlled by the word. So he is the exact representation of his being, that is the son is the exact representation of the father, sustaining all things through his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, that was his death and resurrection, uh, he ultimately sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
And so we have this unique sort of presentation and summary of the life of Jesus. Again, notice Jesus came to do the Father's will. He came to be the exact representation, to, to, to be the, what we could see because we can't see the Father. So he kind of reveals himself in that way. Paul will say something very similar, Colossians chapter 1. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Very similar passage. We'll see how this uh, fits together. Colossians chapter 1. Picking it up in verse 15. The Son, Colossians chapter 1, written by the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Son, that would be Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The idea of firstborn here is preeminent, most important. It's more important than all of creation. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him, that would be in the Son, All things were created. See, again, here's another passage reminding us and giving us more detail about how creation worked. It was through the Son. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That is, let's say if we could this afternoon all put our heads together and let's say we could invent a telescope that's a thousand times more, t- more powerful than anything we've ever had, okay? Us here in this room, we get together, got uh, 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 all our thinking together, we come up with an idea for a telescope that can see farther than we've ever seen, okay? So we build it because we've got lots of time this afternoon. So we build the thing and we start to look out there and what do we discover? More stars, more planets, more solar systems, more stuff, right? That's probably, if we could see further, that's probably what we'd see is, right? More of what we've already seen. Amazing sights and pictures and unbelievably uh, big stars and and so far away with big numbers, right? As as to how far and the speed of light and all those things that we would be looking at. And and we, we would go and say, well, no one's ever even seen these stars before. Why do they exist? Oh, well, that's easy. We don't even have to make the telescope to figure that out. They exist. They were created by him. That would be by Jesus. And they were created for him. They were created by him and they were created for him. And so if you're going, yeah, but I mean, we can only see this far. Why not just kind of stop there? Well, it's simple. It wasn't made for us. It's made for him. He can see farther. So he created more. So how much did he create? We have no idea. As far as we can see, there's stuff. And if we could see farther, it appears what we'd see is more stuff, more stars, more planets, more celestial things out there in, in space. And the farther we can see, the, the more mysterious the whole thing is as to how big and, and how far and how fast and how long and all those types of things. But it wasn't created for us. It was created for him, by him and for him. That, that is, earth was created for him. That is, Jesus takes pleasure in the Grand Canyon, uh, in the Arctic Circle, or the Antarctic. Uh, takes pleasure in the ocean. And if you've ever been to any of the Hawaiian islands, the gentle breeze in the ocean lapping up on, uh, on, on the beach uh, in, in the cool evening breeze. He takes pleasure in that, right? He takes pleasure in a beautiful snowfall on a mountain, and he takes pleasure in the golden time of harvest in a Kansas wheat field, right? He takes pleasure in all things. Those things were created by him and for him. Furthermore, he takes pleasure in those who were created in his image, the unique image bearers that we all are, are uniquely created for his pleasure. Notice what, the, what, what uh, Paul is saying here. That we'll go back to verse 16. For in him, that would be in Jesus, all things were created. And so someone's going to put up their hand. Well, Paul, does all mean all? Here's what it means. Paul will answer that question. He'll say this. Everything in heaven, everything on earth. Everything visible, everything visible. He created powers, uh, thrones, excuse me, and powers and rulers and authorities All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. That is, he existed before he created anything. And in in him, excuse me, all things hold together. That is, in his word, right? He could simply say, there's no more stars and there would cease to be stars, right? He spoke them into existence. He could speak them out of existence. That is, all things are in him. 
And so we see that the son is sort of, the father says to the son, let's create. And the son takes care of creation. So God creates by means of the son or through the son. We want to say, well, what does the father look like? God sends the son so that we can see the father. So we can see this role of the son making the father known, which is exactly what we saw multiple times in the book of John. John was kind of making this emphasis. And so we see that the son uh, makes the father known and we see the son as this exact representation of the father and, 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 and so on. Uh, another passage, you don't need to turn there if you don't want, Second. Timothy chapter 3, a common passage, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. That is Paul telling Timothy, as Paul is near the end of his life, Timothy has what it appears to be more life to live and, and uh, to serve. And so he says, uh, continue in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it. That is, Timothy had the faith passed down through his mother and through his grandmother, carry on. That's the message, carry on. And from infancy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is a a phrase that Paul gives to, to help understand what the purpose of revelation is, to make us wise to salvation. That is, we need to be wise to understand the son is the reflection of the father. That was his purpose. We want to see God? Well, we look at the Son, and the Son reveals. The Son testifies to the truth, right? That's what the Son said in John chapter 18. When we don't see the Son, then we miss the point. John chapter 5, Jesus confronting the Jews, and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Imagine the gall. People are reading the Bible thinking they're going to find eternal life. And this is what Jesus is going to criticize them for. You're reading the scriptures and you think you're going to find eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says. That is, the scriptures themselves don't contain eternal life. They point to me and I am the one who gives eternal life if you will, on behalf of the Father. The, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And, and, and so they think that they can be saved through the word of God, which is the Son revealing the truth or testifying to the truth of the Father. So you have this relational idea here that that the Jews are rejecting the relationship, will will embrace the scriptures, but will not embrace the Son. That's going to be their position. Let's let's embrace the Bible because we know that's true, but let's not embrace Jesus. And Jesus is saying, "But but the Bible's about me, but the scriptures testify to me, right? Which is, by the way, what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, whom well, let's just read this here. Second Peter chapter one, uh, Peter writes, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but the prophet, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is when the prophets wrote the Bible, when they, uh, God spoke to them and they wrote it down, those scriptures that we have, they were carried by the Holy Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who indwelled them, who gave them the words to write, who gave them the, uh, uh, w- what they ought to say. A- and so this is the point that the Jews were missing back in John chapter 5, which is, hey, we'll believe the Bible, but we're going to reject Jesus. We don't think he's, he's the one. And he's Jesus like, yes, but the Bible, the scriptures are testifying about me. And of course, they are written by the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is there to point to Jesus, okay? What's Jesus doing? He's showing you the truth, you see? So this is how the Bible is created. And so the thing that we can do is if we go, oh, I love the Bible, the Bible's so good. I mean, in the Bible, we have eternal life. Well, no, that's not quite right. In the Bible, we have the Spirit testifying to the Son, and it is through the Son that we have eternal life because the Son connects us back to the Father, the very one we pray to, right? When Jim prayed this morning, he prayed to the Father, and at the end of the prayer, he said, in the name of the Son. Why? Because the Son is our only connection. 
And and so the son is the one who gives us his righteousness because we're full of wretchedness and sinfulness. And so we're now clothed in Jesus' righteousness and we can go straight to the father. And that's exactly what we did this morning. We brought our needs to the father by means of the son. All right, well, we put all this together. Let's go back and and think a little bit uh, uh, about John and uh, how he sort of brings all this together in light of our time. First John, first John chapter four, we'll end here. First John chapter four. Truth is relational. Truth is the father being revealed by the son through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if truth is relational, therefore God's word or scripture or revelation must be relational as well. That is the only way for us to know about God is that same means that the father is going to make himself known by the son through the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Bible is, right? The Bible is the writings of people who are writing under the Holy Spirit or being carried along by the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter chapter 2. They're carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's the Spirit doing? He's testifying to the Son. What does Jesus say in John chapter 5 to the Jews? He says, the scriptures that are about me, they're testifying to the Son. But you're rejecting me. You're trying to embrace the scriptures and reject me. That's not going to work. The scriptures are about me. Well, so really everything's about Jesus. No, no, Jesus came not on any will of his own, not to do his own thing. He doesn't actually have any power on his own. He came to do the will of the Father came to make the Father known, came to testify to the truth. He came as the truth, but to then reveal the truth, which is ultimately found in the Father. And so we have this unique relational thing. And you might go, that was amazing gymnastics. I have no idea why we did all that fun stuff. I mean, you went back and forth and up and down and left and right. I have no idea why all that even exists. Let's see why it even exists. 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, if you will allow me to change that slightly, dear Marathon, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So John is writing and commanding his audience, which really passes down to us. We must be mindful of the spirit because it's the spirit that testifies to the Son. But now John is warning us, not every spirit... Not every spirit, test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Not every spirit is. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. Be careful. Here we go. Verse two, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Well, of course, isn't that what the Holy Spirit does, right? The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. If you encounter a spirit, hey, the spirit led me this morning uh, to to teach you uh, that there was no son, right? Well, if that happened, that wasn't the spirit of God, right? The spirit of God always points to the son, right? Or or the spirit has now told me that you don't need to believe in Jesus, just believe in me. I'll get you through. I'm Canadian, right? right, But but immediately you know that that's not the Holy Spirit. I mean, that might be something left over from pizza from last night, but that has nothing to do. The, The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus, never away. So what does John say? Be careful. Be careful because it's really hard when someone comes and tells you, and when you serve in ministry, this happens all the time. Someone comes and tells you something. They're saying, like, the Spirit showed me this. I was praying and the Spirit led me over here. And praise the Lord when it is the Spirit, but it's really hard to help someone understand when they're trying to do something that clearly is against what Scripture teaches. That is, that is not whatever that was that wasn't the Spirit. And so John says, be careful. But in every spirit, verse 3, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God, right? That's what the spirit does. He acknowledges Jesus, so those that don't are not from God. This is the spirit of the anti-God, anti-Christ. Yet the idea, anti-Christ is against God. So John's going to give us, which is typical of John's work, he's going to give us things in black and white, John loves black and white. He loves light and dark. He loves blood and water. He, he loves these ideas that, that, that are polar opposites so that we can see it's one or the other. And, and, and so if it's not the spirit of God, it's the spirit of the anti-God that is anti-Christ, right? So this is what the spirit does, points you to Jesus. Anytime you encounter this, notice what's happening. It's pointing in the wrong direction. 
right? That's what another spirit would do, point you away from you. It's either to Jesus or away. And the spirits testify to Jesus. We've got to keep going here. Uh, you, dear children, verse 4, are from God and overcome them and have overcome them, that is, these spirits of the world, because the one who is in you is greater than who, the one in the world. They, uh, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. This is part of seeing sort of that worldly foolishness. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Notice that we went from testifying about Jesus to testifying about truth. Why? Truth is always relational. It always is found in the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. It's always. So we moved from, and, and John just did it for us here in these handful of verses. Verse 7, dear friends, let us not, uh, excuse me, let us love one another, for love comes from God. So the way that you treat each other comes from the model of the very Godhead. That is, the way the Father treats the Son, the way the Father treats the Spirit, the way the Son treats the Spirit, the way the Spirit treats the Son, the way the Spirit treats the Father. I'm not sure if I got them all right, but I think you get the idea, right? That relationship that God is, that relationship that God always has been, that's what we do. We love one another. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves... As in anyone who does what the Father does to the Son, loves him. Anyone who does what the Son does to the Father, loves him. Right? Anyone who does what the Spirit does to the Son, loves him. Anyone who does that is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, doesn't know God because, and now we have clarity, God is love. That's what he is. That's what you call the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The way the Son treats the Father, the way the Father treats the Son, the way the Spirit treats the Son, the way the Spirit treats the Father, etc., etc. That is what love is. So love isn't something that works good in a 70s love song, right? I mean, we've got lots of those. But, but those aren't always, right? Uh, one person always talks about the Beatles, right? They said, all you need is love, and then they broke up, right? So that, 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 that wasn't love, whatever that was. And, and so the, the thing is that what is love is for us to treat others, if I can say it this way, the way God treats himself. Does that make sense? The, the way the Father treats the Son, the way the Son treats the Father, that's what love is. And once we see that, once we understand that, once we embrace that, once we have that living in us, that's what we have with the Spirit, we have that living in us, then that's how we treat others. Let's keep going just for a moment and we'll be done. Who, uh, God is love, verse nine. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, and that's not how it started, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And so this is our relationship with truth, and this is our relationship with scripture, and this is ultimately why we are called to love. It's because because that's who God is. That is, there's a few places in the New Testament that give us a glimpse towards life before Genesis 1, right? In Genesis 1, God creates everything. But what was he doing before that? What about before everything? Well, we have a few before the foundations of the world verses in the New Testament. And we get a glimpse, John 17, if we had the time, verse 24, we see that Jesus is praying that we would love each other the way the Father has loved him, Jesus prays to the Father, before the foundations of the world. That is, before God created anything, you had a father loving a son. Through all timeless eternity, the Father has always been loving the Son. The Son has been loving the Father. The Father has been loving the Spirit. The Spirit has been loving the Son, etc., etc. You have this perfect union. Creation exists that they could share that love. That's why we were created. We were created to enjoy this unbelievable love. We broke that love in our sinfulness. We broke that love in our wickedness and rebellion. And so God sends, the Father sends the Son, which was this loving act to show that, hey, we're loving. We're, we, we can, I can provide salvation from the outside in sending his son. His son offers us forgiveness. And, and so we are invited back in as sometimes Paul will use language like co-heirs, right? We're co-heirs with Jesus or we're adopted as sons and daughters. That is, we are invited into the relational being that is God. 
we don't have time, but I simply want to commission you, explore any other religion in the world and see if you can find love. You can find all sorts of interesting things. If you're looking for a to-do manual, I highly recommend Islam. That'll tell you what to do, okay? No love there, but certainly if you're looking for something to do, that'll tell you what to do. But what the Bible gives us is a picture of love. That's why not every verse has a command. Because it's not about do this, do that, do this. Here's the whole point. We can't do it, right? Isn't that the point of salvation is that in the end, we can't fix ourselves. And so salvation is external. And so what we're primarily given in scripture is a picture or a view of the Savior. And when we see the Savior and begin to see him as loving, the command then transfers for us to then love. That's what scripture teaches us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you chose to love us first by loving the son through all eternity. And in that love for us, you chose to forgive our sins, us made in your image who rebelled against you, our creator, in our own sinfulness and our own pridefulness, thinking that we understand more of what we need than you do, and yet you in your loving mercy sent your son, and by your grace has reached those in this room that we have eternal life in him. And so, Father, we cling to your son, and we're grateful for your spirit who continues to point us back, and for your word which continues to remind us that even though we didn't live 2,000 years ago, we never saw Jesus walk on the water in the Sea of Galilee. We didn't see him preach to the multitudes on the, on the hillside. We never saw him cast out demons or heal the sick. But we have the words written by people who did. And your spirit testifies to their truthfulness. And so we can know of our Savior and that we can embrace him because it's through him that we get to you. And so, Father, we are grateful that in the end, what we have is a relationship, that you are a relationship and you've chosen to share that with us and you've asked us to be that relationship in the world. And so that is our prayer, that we would be a reflection of the truth by loving one another as you have commanded. Ask your blessing and your grace and your peace on each one here in Christ's precious name. Amen. God bless you.